it's Diane. To read you to sleep tonight will continue Grandfather's Chair by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I hope this helps you sleep. Chapter 7 When his little audience next assembled round the chair, Grandfather gave them a doleful history of the Quaker persecution which began in 1656 and raged for about three years in Massachusetts. He told them how, in the first place, twelve of the converts of George Fox, the first Quaker in the world, had come over from England. They seemed to be impelled by an earnest love for the souls of men and a pure desire to make known what they considered a revelation from heaven. But the rulers looked upon them as plotting the downfall of all government and religion. They were banished from the colony. In a little while, however, not only the first twelve had returned, but a multitude of other Quakers had come to rebuke the rulers and to preach against the priests and steeple houses. Grandfather described the hatred and scorn with which these enthusiasts were received. They were thrown into dungeons. They were beaten with many strips, women as well as men. They were driven forth into the wilderness and left to the tender mercies of wild beasts and Indians. The children were amazed to hear that the more the Quakers were scourged and imprisoned and banished, the more did the sect increase, both by the influx of strangers and by converts from among the Puritans. But Grandfather told them that God had put something into the soul of man, which always turned the cruelties of the persecutors to naught. He went on to relate that in 1659, two Quakers named William Robinson and Marmaduke Stevenson were hanged at Boston. A woman had been sentenced to die with them but was reprieved on condition of her leaving the colony. Her name was Mary Dyer. In the year 1660, she returned to Boston, although she knew death awaited her there, and if Grandfather had been correctly informed, an incident had taken place which connects her with our story. This Mary Dyer had entered the Mint Master's dwelling clothed in sackcloth and ashes, and seated herself in our great chair with a sort of dignity and state. Then she proceeded to deliver what she called a message from heaven, but in the midst of it they dragged her to Persia. And she was executed? asked Lawrence. She was, said Grandfather. Grandfather, said Charlie, clenching his fist. I would have fought for that poor Quaker woman. Ah, but if a sword had been drawn for her, said Lawrence, it could would have taken away all the beauty of her death. It seemed as if hardly any of the preceding stories had thrown such an interest around Grandfather's chair, 
as did the fact that the poor, persecuted, wandering Quaker woman had rested in it for a moment. The children were so much excited that Grandfather found it necessary to bring his account of the persecution to a close. In 1660, the same year in which Mary Dyer was executed, said he, Charles II was restored to the throne of his fathers. This king had many vices, but he would not permit blood to be shed under pretense of religion in any part of his dominions. The Quakers in England told him what had been done to their brethren in Massachusetts, and he sent orders to Governor Endicott to forbear all such proceedings in future. And so ended the Quaker persecution, one of the most mournful passages in the history of our forefathers. Grandfather then told his auditors that, shortly after the above incident, the great chair had been given by the mint master to the Reverend Mr. John Elliot. He was the first minister of Roxbury, but besides attending to the pastoral duties there, he learned the language of the red men and often went into the woods to preach to them. So earnestly did he labor for their conversion that he has always been called the Apostle to the Indians. The mention of this holy man suggested to Grandfather the propriety of giving a brief sketch of the history of the Indians so far as they were connected with the English colonists. A short period before the arrival of the first pilgrims at Plymouth, there had been a very grievous plague among the red men, and the sages and ministers of that day were inclined to the opinion that Providence had set this mortality in order to make room for the settlement of the English. But I know not why we should suppose that an Indian's life is less precious in the eye of heaven than that of a white man. Be that as it may, death had certainly been very busy with the savage tribes. In many places, the English found the wigwams deserted and the cornfields growing to waste, with none to harvest the grain. There were heaps of earth also, which, being dung open, proved to be Indian graves containing bows and flint-headed spears and arrows, for the Indians buried the dead warriors' weapons along with them. In some spots there were skulls and other human bones laying unburied. In 1633 and the year afterwards, the smallpox broke out among the Massachusetts Indians, multitudes of whom died by this terrible disease of the old world. These misfortunes made them far less powerful than they had formerly been. For nearly half a century after the arrival of the English, the red men showed themselves generally inclined to peace and amity. They often made submission when they might have made successful war. The Plymouth settlers led by the famous Captain Miles Standish, slew some of them in 1623, 
without any very evident necessity for doing so. In 1636 and the following year, there was the most dreadful war that had yet occurred between the Indians and the English. The Connecticut settlers, assisted by a celebrated Indian chief named Uncas, bore the brunt of this war, but with little aid from Massachusetts. Many hundreds of the hostile Indians were slain or burnt in their wigwams. Sassacus, their sachem, fled to another tribe after his own people were defeated, but he was murdered by them, and his head was sent to his English enemies. From that period down to the time of King Philip's War, which will be mentioned hereafter, there was not much trouble with the Indians, but the colonists were always on their guard and kept their weapons ready for the conflict. I have sometimes doubted, said Grandfather, when he had told these things to the children. I have sometimes doubted whether there was more than a single man among our forefathers who realized that an Indian possesses a mind and a heart and an immortal soul. That single man was John Eliot. All the rest of the early settlers seemed to think that the Indians were an inferior race of beings whom the Creator had merely allowed to keep possession of this beautiful country till the white men should be in want of it. Did the pious men of those days never try to make Christians of them? said Lawrence. Sometimes, it is true, answered Grandfather. The magistrates and ministers would talk about civilizing and converting the red people, but at the bottom of their hearts, they would have had almost as much expectation of civilizing the wild bear of the woods and making him fit for paradise. They felt no faith in the success of any such attempts, because they had no love for the poor Indians. Now, Eliot was full of love for them, and therefore so full of faith and hope that he spent the labor of a lifetime in their behalf. I would have conquered them first and then converted them, said Charlie. Ah, Charlie, there spoke the very spirit of our forefathers, replied Grandfather. Mr. Eliot had a better spirit. He looked upon them as his brethren. He persuaded as many of them as he could to leave off their idle and wandering habits, and to build houses and cultivate the earth as the English did. He established schools among them, and taught many of the Indians how to read. He taught them, likewise, how to pray. Hence, they were called praying Indians. Finally. Having spent the best years of his life for their good, Mr. Elliot resolved to spend the remainder in doing them yet a greater benefit. I know what that was, cried Lawrence. He sat down in his study, continued Grandfather, and began a translation of the Bible into the Indian tongue. It was while he was engaged in this pious work 
that the mint master gave him our great chair. His toil needed it and deserved it. Oh, grandfather, tell us all about that Indian Bible, exclaimed Lawrence. I have seen it in the library of the Antennium, and the tears came into my eyes to think that there were no Indians left to read it. That ends chapter 7 of Grandfather's Chair. Sleep well, my friend. Thank you.